0: Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information.
1: The universe of publicly traded, pure-play digital transformation and blockchain companies has grown significantly in both size and revenues over the last few years. Access the companies driving blockchain innovation with the VanEck Digital Transformation ETF, ticker DAPP, your link to the blockchain. Investing involves substantial risk and high volatility, including
2: possible loss of principal. and investors should consider the fund's objective, risk, charges, and expenses carefully before investing.
1: To obtain a prospectus, call 800-826-2333 or visit VanEck.com. Please read the prospectus carefully before investing.
2: All right, just a few days left here in 2021, and I have a very nice holiday-shortened podcast to close out the year. Joining me will be Tom Leiden, founder and CEO of ETF Trends. We're going to look back at the best and worst-performing ETFs this year. I have the top five of both. And then we'll also discuss ETF performance through what I would say is much more of a financial advisor lens. In the sense of, if you look at the top performing ETF this year, it's B-Dry. I'll just give you that one now. It's the BreakWave Dry Bulk Shipping ETF. That's up over 240%. The thing about that ETF is not many advisors actually own this in their portfolios right that's great it's delivering astronomical returns and maybe more advisors should own it but i think oftentimes the best performing etfs are pretty niche and so tom and i are going to discuss etf performance in areas that are much more widely held in portfolios the core building blocks So we'll do that, and then to close out our conversation and set the table for next year, I do want to spend a few minutes hearing how Tom views portfolio construction as we enter 2022. What do you think will be some of the key portfolio considerations for ETF investors in the new year? And then also joining me this week will be Matt Tuttle, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Tuttle Capital Management, he's going to spotlight the Tuttle Capital Short Innovation ETF, ticker SARK, which if you haven't heard about this, SARK seeks to provide inverse exposure to the return of the ARK Innovation ETF, ticker ARKK, which interestingly, ARKK has been one of the more performance-challenged ETFs of 2021. And you look at the timing of this launch, SART came to market on November 9th. And since then, it's already up about 18%, which of course means that ARKK is down about that much. So I'll have Matt explain how the CTF is structured, and what he views as the uh, potential investment case moving forward. And then I also want to discuss the backstory around why Matt launched this product because I have seen him catching a little flack for bringing this to market. I, I think some people saw this as a uh, shot at Kathy Wood and Ark. just that you have one ETF issuer trying to capitalize on the uh, failure of another ETF issuer. So I'm going to have Matt explain why he launched this product and let him add some context here. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate NateGeraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with ETF Trends' Tom Lydon.
1: Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights.
3: This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, $600 in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes.
2: Tom, happy holidays to you. Uh, are you enjoying a little downtime this week, or are you just uh, grinding through here?
3: It's great to have family around, Nate. Uh, so we're getting a lot of fun time in with family, but also trying to close out the year and get uh, get ready for 22 as well.
2: Well, it should be uh, an interesting year next year, which we'll talk about. But uh, look, as you know, I've spent a lot of time recapping this year, uh, particularly in, in ETFs. We've had a parade of ETF experts, right? Your very own Dave Nottig, uh, CFRA's Todd Rosenbluth. Uh, Last week, Morningstar's Ben Johnson and uh, Tom Hendrickson. It's been a lot of fun, but I do think we've covered every noteworthy ETF story in uh, fine detail. There's just not much uh, left to be said. However... I do want to give you an opportunity to put the final bow on ETFs in 2021, and then we'll get into ETF performance and talk about next year. Uh, And by the way, on ETF performance, I actually haven't covered that yet, so I'm looking forward to that. But just give us your final thoughts on the year in ETFs. What would you take away most from 2021?
3: Well, first of all, Nate, uh, congratulations on another great year with your podcast. You've done a great job. You've helped a lot of advisors. You've helped a lot of individual investors kind of guide through all the options out there, and the options continue to get more and more, uh, and there's performance issues, there's structural issues, but the uh, the people that you bring on and the way you walk people through every week, it, it's fantastic, so congratulations. Yes, it's been an exciting year. Uh, I think if anybody said we'd be close to a trillion dollars in flows this year, uh, they would have looked at you like you had a, uh, your head was on backwards. But it was crazy. Over $900 billion in new assets. The ETF industry in the U.S. is over $7 trillion now. Worldwide, over $10 trillion. But as you kind of pointed out earlier, um, a lot of that money is going into the core areas of the market. Just the three largest S&P 500 ETFs, SPY, IVV, VOO, brought in over a hundred billion dollars just in those funds. So it's always fun to talk about as as Eric Balchunas says, those shiny objects, but the industry continues to grow at the core and and rightly so it should, right?
2: Well, I think that sets us up perfectly to talk performance, because as I was alluding to at the top, if you look at a lot of the performance winners, and I think this is the case every year, and the performance losers, they tend to be more of those shiny objects. And then, of course, the core parts of the portfolio just keep trucking along. They're going to go how the market goes. So so let's talk about those performance winners and and losers. I'm going to give you the top five of each. And I should note these exclude leveraged inverse and volatility products. I just think those can add a lot of noise to the narrative. So let me let me go through these and then you can comment. Uh, Number five on the list of best performing ETFs is the Crane Shares Global Carbon ETF. KRBN up nearly 100% on the year. That also took in over a billion dollars in assets, just a huge success story. Number four is the First Trust Natural Gas ETF, ticker FCG, also up about 100%. Number three is the IPATH 10 ETN, JJT, up 120%. Number two is the IPATH Carbon ETN, ticker GRN. So you look, that's two carbon products in the top five. GRN is up 135%. And then number one is B-Dry, which I mentioned at the top. The Breakwave Dry Bulk Shipping ETF up over, uh, over 240%. And then I'll just note some of the other ETFs uh, dotting the top 10 included the Uranium ETF, URNM. There were three energy related ETFs and also the Vanek Rare Metals ETF, REMX. Anything standing out to you there? Well, as you as you know, um, it's been a huge year
3: for energy and uh, commodities in general, uh, coming off of, of the, the huge drawdown that they had in the first quarter of, uh, of last year. And it continues to move forward. And, and when you talk about areas like carbon, the fact that the world is trying to get carbon neutral, uh, anything carbon related is really hot right now and it doesn't seem to be letting up anytime soon. It's a fascinating area. And then finally, you know, the dry bulk shipping ETF, uh, all we have to do is look off the coast here in Southern California and see all the ships lined up trying to get into Long Beach. The supply chain is crazy. Cost for shipping is just through the roof. And uh, that doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon either. But specifically to these 10 that you run through, a lot of it's in the commodities area. And it's, it's a good indication of what people should be looking at going into next year. Commodities has not been a loved area in the marketplace, as you know, Nate. But in the past year, in general, it's done very, very well. And with inflation and this, uh, the potential for rising interest rates and just the general cost of goods going through the roof, it's probably not going to slow down.
2: 100% agree. I think this is really an inflation story when you look at most of what's in the the, the top 10 here. And if we do, in fact, have sustained inflation, I, I think there is still some debate out there. We'll, we'll see. Uh, these types of products will continue to take in assets and, and probably be on the, uh, the the better performing side of the equation in terms of ETFs. OK, let's look at the uh, the, the negative side of the, of the uh, ledger, the worst performing ETFs. So the fifth worst performing ETF of 2021 is the ProShares Long Online Short Stores ETF, ticker CLIX, clicks, which I love that ticker. That's down 38%. Number four is the GlobalX Emerging Markets Internet and E-Commerce ETF, EWEB, That's down 39%. Uh, number three is the Invesco Golden Dragon China ETF, ticker PGJ, down 44%. The second worst-performing ETF is the Global X Education ETF, EDUT, down about 50%. And then the uh, worst-performing ETF of 2021, the CraneShare CSI China Internet ETF, KWEB, also down uh, about 50%. But I think KWEB again—I I mentioned the uh, the, the CraneShares Carbon ETF as being an interesting story. KWEB, I think, is one of the ETF stories of the year because this thing took in like eight billion dollars. Uh, And it's down. You you never see an ETF down fifty percent and having a lot of people come in. Obviously, there are a lot of uh, dip buyers here. But as you look at those five worst performing ETFs, I mean, any takeaways?
3: Well, well, a few. First of all, um, online buying, internet commerce globally, uh, is something that's huge. It's growing. It's not going away. But when you mix in the China factor, it's been damaged. Based on uh, all the concerns going on in China, at the same time as you point out with K Web, they've actually had billions of dollars in new assets in where people are some doing some bottom fishing. The other areas uh, are IPOs and uh, disruptive technology specific, you know, Kathy Wood type stocks that had a great run in 2020, Nate. But um, coming off the highs in February this year, those areas have been challenged too. I mean. If you were to look and see what these did in 2020 versus what they did in 2021, it makes a lot of sense. The big question is, uh, are they down and out in 2022? Um, I wouldn't bet against online buying. I wouldn't bet against China. And I surely wouldn't bet against Kathy Wood.
2: Again, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, the story here to me, obviously, China is a big one. You, you, You look at Actually, if you go down through the, uh, the the top 10 worst performing ETFs there's another China ETF on there CHIR which is a China real estate ETF you also have EMqq on there um, the in emerging markets internet and e-commerce ETF but I think China underperforming is a big story there and then also if, if you look at the, uh, the the top 10 worst performing so you go down to that that number six through ten there's two potty ETFs on there and, and then you mentioned Kathy Wood there's ARKG. Uh, so to your point, a lot of stocks that were working in in 2020 did not work in in 2021. I've got to say on the uh, pot theme, I was bullish on that at the beginning of the year. I, I think with the uh, the, the Democrats taking control in and, and Biden administration. I thought we might see a bigger tailwind behind uh, pot ETFs. You know, I do these predictions every year at the beginning of the year, which, by the way, I will have my 2022 ETF predictions coming out next week. But one of them was that we would see a breakthrough in the uh, in the cannabis ETFs. That just did not happen <laughs> this year. I think that was the only one I got wrong, by the way. I have to mention that.
3: <laughs> well, I, I think uh, as you look to 22, it's it really is becoming mainstream and and commoditized a bit, and that might be a little bit of the pricing pressure.
2: Again, I don't
3: know. (laughs) All
2: right, so as I was alluding to at the top, you know, these uh, year-end performance lists, they are fun to look at, but let's be honest, I I think most advisors don't have a ton of exposure to these products, right? These tend to be more satellite holdings, if anything. Not always, but I think in general. And so I want to get your take from more of a core portfolio perspective the ETFs we know that a lot of advisors own and you look at the markets of course it's been a great year for U.S. stocks S&P 500 up what about 29 percent I I feel like it's been more of the same from international stocks just continuing to underperform the U.S. which we can talk about that if you want but bonds were challenged this year Uh, gold struggled what what stood out to you from more of a core uh, ETF performance perspective?
3: Well, Nate, you and I talk about this a lot. Coming out of the financial crisis, if you bought the S&P 500, you would have done really, really well. Uh, and, and most of that is because of the FANG stocks. And, you know, you throw Tesla in there, you throw Microsoft in there, handful of stocks that represent the majority of the performance. Um, that wasn't necessarily the case last year, but this year uh, it, it was the story again. Uh, and you look at the NASDAQ. 50% is made up of 10 of those type stocks. Uh, if you owned the S&P, if you owned the NASDAQ 100, you did pretty well. The, the exciting thing here is finally the S&P equal weight was up about 27% so far this year. And that's encouraging. It's nice to see other stocks uh, in the major market indexes keep up. And they did really, really well. You know, back on the other side of the balance sheet, when you talk about bonds, The ag was down about uh, 3.5% this year, which is a bit of a concern, but understandable with the concerns about inflation, the challenges in the bond market. And that's an area, although we talk about volatility and valuations on the equity side, the big concern, I think, in 22 will be what happens with bonds. And you're seeing already a lot of advisors shifting from a 60-40 portfolio to more of a 70-30 or even an 80-20 portfolio trying to look at other areas to get income for their clients, try to move some of that to safe areas like real short-term duration, actively managed bond funds, or even alternative income strategies like some of these options overlay strategies. But there's a lot of money that's tied to the Barclays Ag. I think uh, that's going to be one of the stories of 22.
2: I agree. I think To me, that story uh, from a core portfolio perspective is the bond story, because you look at some of the most popular bond ETFs. You mentioned AGG. Go down the list. BND, VCIT, BNDX, IEF, LQD. I could keep going. They're all negative on the year. And I think that's the challenge right now. And, and as we certainly turn the calendar into 2022, how do you handle the fixed income portion of a portfolio? The other thing I, I just have to point out, Tom, is you, you look at something like the Spider S P 500 ETF, SPY, mentioned up 29% year to date. How many people called that coming into the year? You think about oh. the run we had last year, right? We had the coronavirus uh, crash in March of 2020, and then stocks took off from there. I think because of how hard stocks ran into the end of 2020, there there was, I would say, some pessimism out there in terms of what the market could do. And so from that core portfolio perspective, if you were underweight U.S. stocks, uh, just from a, a relative performance standpoint, you underperformed. And I think that's an interesting story. I also think it's a... You know, it's a, it's a word of caution as you look at the prognostications, uh, prognostications that will be coming out here over the next week.
3: Yeah, we'll all try to look for those exciting things, um, and there will be a lot of predictions. But we also make it really difficult on ourselves. I mean, there are some great major market indicator ETFs out there that have performed very, very well over time. And the way the structure of the indexes are set up, they do the right thing. So, uh, you know, we don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot. It's it's fun to talk about the exciting areas of the market. I mean, inflation and commodities alone is something that we should spend a little time on because it hasn't been an area that's been loved for a while, but you go back over decades and you see periods of inflation and what commodities have done. If you don't have commodities in your portfolio, it is something that you should consider during inflationary times. And the funny thing is, Nate, Gold was an underperformer. So it was the worst performer of all the commodities buckets out there. Uh, However, historically, gold tends to be a second-half player. So don't count gold out um, if you're looking for just some inflation protection probably gold will have a better year next year.
2: I've talked about this quite a bit over the past few weeks. Gold is just such a an oddity to me because you look at the environment, I think most people would have expected gold to perform better. But you, again, you look at GLD, it's down something like 5% year to date. It just hasn't done what I think most people would have expected. Now, I think one of the benefits of gold in a portfolio as gold marches to the beat of its own drummer. You never know what it's going to do. And that's one of the reasons why it can be beneficial to own a, a small allocation in a portfolio. It's just uh, that lack of correlation. But gold, no doubt, has been interesting. You mentioned uh, inflation protection. I think we should note the iShares tip bond ETF, TIP, that's up 5% this year. And, and a lot of the inflation-related ETFs took in Pretty significant inflows this year, so certainly on advisors' radar, which I guess, Tom, let, let's, let's move on to, to 2022 here. I mean, we, we talked about the challenge of fixed income in a portfolio, uh, perhaps thinking about inflation hedges, things like commodities. What do you expect to be front and center for advisors? As they look to position portfolios, what do you think are going to be some of the biggest considerations or the biggest themes in terms of portfolio construction?
4: Yeah, I, I,
3: uh, I agree with you. I think it's on the fixed income side of the balance sheet. That's where the challenges are going to be. And after 30 years of declining rates, uh, we're going to be tested. So individual investors looking for yields are going to be tested. Uh, real returns uh, are something to consider. You know, Again, if, if you've got 5% inflation and you're getting 1.5% uh, you know, on the Treasury and it's declining, it, that's something to really consider. Um, I think that's going to be the main story going into 2022. Um, the other thing is where are the unloved areas. You know, we talked a little bit about China. We lo- buy opportunities like Kathy um, Woods innovation stocks. Boy, you know, if you've got a long-term outlook, there's some really decent buys out there. So um, I wouldn't shy away from that, especially if you're a long-term investor. And, you know, we can't help but talk a little bit about crypto, Nate. I mean, that's that's something that even though the crypto market is only $2 trillion and uh, the total stock market capitalization around the world is coming up to $100 trillion, it's one thing that we spend a lot more time on, for sure. Um, I think you're going to see... More and more investors and more and more advisors find ways to have a little piece in there because we're just in the early stages as far as education.
2: All right, so you just brought up three of my favorite topics. We're going to have to touch on each of those at least briefly with the time we have. I I want to go back to just looking abroad, looking globally You know, you think about investing internationally, I mentioned in 2021, if you didn't own the S&P 500, at least have a market weight there, you were underperforming from a relative standpoint in your portfolio. You know, the problem is, you look over the past what decade plus, that's been the case. And it's interesting, next week I'm going to be joined by uh, Cambria's Meb Faber, who I think you know is pretty vocal about allocating globally and certainly looking at valuations, which he would argue those valuations look much more attractive outside the, uh, the the U.S. right now. But, you know, Tom, it's just so difficult because international stocks have underperformed for so long, right? For for advisors building globally diversified portfolios, they've trailed the market fairly substantially. Now, I I think you and I both know that this can and it likely will reverse at some point, but it's really tough in the moment when you watch year after year of U.S. stocks running ahead. Any thoughts on how advisors should think about this? You just have to stick with this long term and know that at some point uh, the performance will flip.
3: Well, as an advisor, if you're well diversified both domestically and globally and with fixed income and stocks, if you've had growth and value, and all of that's compared to the S&P 500 every day in the news, it's been tough. But most advisors have done a good job diversifying. Thank God, value stocks did pretty well this year. But, you know, it's been a tough ride for value in general for a long period of time. So if in your equity mix, you've got uh, developed countries, you've got emerging market countries, you've got value stocks that have all Taken some of that investment allocation away from the SP 500. Sometimes at the end of the year, it's a tough conversation because if the SP is putting up numbers of 29% and your portfolio is putting up numbers of, of 8%, um, that's a good return for your client. But after two or three or four or five years of that, uh, they get a little bit anxious because we're always looking at the media. There's always those shiny objects out there where people want a little excitement. So it's tough for advisors these days who are being responsible and doing the right thing, and it's probably going to be even more challenging as we go into next year. We just have to stay the course because advisors are doing a great job for their clients. Um, You know, I kind of call them the financial first responders during this COVID period because it was even that much more difficult for them. And then we, we tackle things today like, crypto where clients are calling and say, hey, should I be in there? And and I don't know about you, Nate, but I, I own some personally, but I don't have any for clients. It, it, what are you doing? Do you have any crypto yourself? And are clients calling
2: saying, I want in? Yeah. So first of all, I do own crypto personally. Um, I think, as you know, I've been a huge advocate of a spot Bitcoin ETF, because I think that would allow a lot of uh, you know traditional clients of advisors to more easily get exposure to, to Bitcoin. Now, there are some great firms out there that are building the the rails between crypto and traditional financial services. Somebody like OnRamp Invest comes to mind where yeah. they have the interface where they will allow advisors to invest in crypto on behalf of their clients, be custodied at places like Gemini. Uh, we, we saw recently, that Ritholtz Wealth Management partnered with Wisdom Tree on a crypto index. I think. Things like that are highly exciting to me. But right now, it's difficult. And, you know, I got to tell you, Tom, I'm really fascinated. You you look at what people can invest in right now, just if you have a traditional account at Charles Schwab or Fidelity. We have Bitcoin futures ETFs now, which I do think is a step forward. But you and I have talked about in the past, those do have some challenges in in terms of the issues with uh, Contango and the performance drag there. They're not perfect. But I'm fascinated to see how this blockchain ETF space plays out, because, there are just so many products out there. And I was looking at performance last week. It's not great compared to the price of spot Bitcoin, or even if you compare blockchain ETFs to the S&P 500, depending upon which ETF you're looking at in the time frame, because uh, you know these products came to market all year long. Now, I don't think there's any question the crypto narrative and advisors wanting to get exposure to this space, that's not going away. That's what we're talking about here today. There's no doubt that more advisors are going to be looking to see how they get their clients' exposure here. But I'm going to be very interested to see how the ETF industry responds because I don't think we're going to see a spot Bitcoin ETF in 2022. I could be wrong. I just think the regulatory runway is too long. And maybe Gary Gensler, the SEC chair, maybe he'll move quicker. He did move pretty fast with Bitcoin futures ETFs. But I got to tell you, as we sit here today, I'm just not optimistic. And so what I'm getting at is I do think – Advisors will look to thematics and, and blockchain ETFs in particular as a potential solution. But there are a lot of products on the market. And again, the, uh, the performance just hasn't been great.
3: Yeah, no, I, I think you're right, Nate. And what you're bringing up is going to be one of the biggest challenges for advisors in 2022. We do a survey every year, as you know, with Matt Hogan and the crew over at Bitwise about to to the advisor marketplace, specifically as an advisor, personally, do you own crypto? Number two, are your clients asking about it and what percentage? And are you doing anything about it? And you, as you can imagine, the last four years, those numbers in all areas continue to tick up. So um, the, the point about blockchain not correlating with spot is something really, really important. And does that mean that advisors are going to take more of a position, albeit a small position, in a futures-based strategy like Veto, um Or are they going to move over to something like one of the grayscale products? Uh, I'm with you. I don't think we're going to see a spot ETF in, in 22. Uh, but there, it doesn't mean that there's going to be le- less demand. It's going to be one of those challenges for advisors and especially boomers who are hearing about it. Their kids are talking about it. They've got their Schwab account and they're looking at it and say, I can't buy crypto on Schwab unless it's a futures based strategy or something uh, like one of those grayscale products.
2: Here's one thing that I will say, if you are an advisor, and I've said this before on the podcast, regardless of whether you believe in crypto or you're bullish or bearish, you better be prepared to have conversations with clients around this. You better be educated. Um, and I, I've said compare this to say the high yield bond space. Maybe you you do or don't believe in owning high yield bonds in a portfolio just because they can have more equity like volatility. But guess what? You're going to have clients that ask about it. So you better be educated in the high yield bond space. It's no different than than crypto. And we can even go back to investing internationally. If you're allocating to international stocks and they've underperformed for the past 10 years, guess what? You got to be educated and speak to clients. Around that and what the potential value of owning international stocks is longer term, I would say the same thing with uh, with crypto. Um, Tom, just a, a couple minutes left here. Uh, I'm going to be joined by Matt Tuttle, who it, back in November debuted this short arc uh, innovation ETF. And you mentioned Kathy Wood and, and arc a bit earlier, and whether or not advisors may may stay on board with her products. To me, it's funny. So you look. ARK and Kathy Wood were the ETF story of the year in 2020. Uh, They were obviously one of the bigger stories of 2021. Maybe not for the best of reasons, but I'm not sure any ETF issuer garnered more media attention this year than ARK. 2022, to me, feels like the year that could sort of set ARK's legacy moving forward. And and the way that I would frame this is, I feel like if ARK comes back with strong performance, maybe they also launch some successful ETFs, they won't be viewed as a one-hit wonder. But if things are challenging again, I think some may view ARC as just catching lightning in a bottle last year. Now, I'm not saying that's fair or even that that's what what happened. We can talk about ARC's performance record going back you know five-plus years. I'm just telling you what I think the narrative will be. The question I have for you is do you think – advisors and investors are going to stay on board here. You know, the markets run here late in December. Uh, ARCs continue to trail. I I just wonder how uh, sticky those investors will be if the performance does not, uh, you know, follow the markets.
3: Yeah, well, you know, we watch uh, the behavior of advisors, and from an advisor standpoint, it is sticky. However, we know that there's a lot of folks in the retail community, especially towards the end of, 2020, that were really excited about the opportunities, bought in, many bought in near the high. Here we are at the end of the year, they're in, they have losing positions. I think there's some year-end tax selling that's going on, mm-hmm. which would make a lot of sense. Um, it, at the same time, what Matt has done is it's a great opportunity to highlight the creativeness of the ETF community. He saw that there was a lot of money going into this area. Uh, it's not that Matt's going to be a winner and Kathy's a loser or or, or vice versa. It's all about options, optionality. It's all about trends. And, you know, Kathy admittedly and her team talks about volatility in their investment strategy. There's going to continue to be volatility. But if if you look long term, five years from now, do you think a short arc product will be better than a long arc product? I would kind of go for the long side. But there's going to be volatility along the way for sure, right, Nate?
2: Well, that's going to be a, uh, another good story to watch in 2022. Again, next year should, should no doubt be interesting. I know I say that every year, but I, I guess despite what we think might happen, there are always surprises. I think the last two years have driven that point home. Uh, but, but, Tom, we'll have to leave it there. Again, happy holidays to you and your family, and thank you for joining me.
3: Thanks,
1: Nate. Happy New Year.
2: That was Tom Leiden, founder and CEO of ETF Trends.
1: With yields as low as they are today, investors seeking high current income don't have a lot of choices, especially if they don't want to expose themselves to a heightened level of risk. The Nationwide Risk Management Income ETF, NUSI, may be an exception. It's designed to seek high monthly income and a measure of downside protection in falling markets. NUSI, a new approach to income generation. Before investing, it's important to consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-617-004 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Risk includes possible principal loss, Quasar Distributors, LLC.
2: I'm now joined by Matt Tuttle, CEO and CIO of Tuttle Capital Management, who currently offers seven ETFs, including the recently launched Tuttle Capital Short Innovation ETF, ticker symbol S-A-R-K-SARC, which seeks to provide inverse exposure to the return of the ARK Innovation ETF, ticker arkk that's what we'll be focusing on this week. Uh, I should note, Tuttle also sub advises on three asset allocation ETFs. And Matt is now on the line with me from uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. Matt, happy holidays. Thanks for joining me.
4: Hey, same to you. And, and thank you for having me.
2: You, you know, it's been such an amazing year in ETFs. We've had a record number of launches, uh, so many interesting new products have come to market. I think without question, Sark falls into that category. I know this ETF turned a lot of heads when you first filed for it earlier in the year. It certainly garnered a lot of attention since the launch back on November 9th. Uh, This pretty quickly jumped over 100 million in assets. I I think right now you're somewhere around 85, 90 mil just with, uh, with performance. But let's start with the backstory on this. You have a number of unique products out there, SPAC ETFs a FOMO ETF, a Fat Tail Risk ETF. What made you decide to launch a short ARC Innovation ETF?
4: Yeah, so there were a bunch of reasons. I mean, the obvious one is the demand. You know, there's about $2.7 billion uh, that is short ARK directly, and that doesn't include the put exposure and, and Wall Street kind of structured products. But really more, you know, Really, the main reason is a couple of things. So first, you you look at the market environment. You know, we've had a period of lower rates, lower inflation for years. That's changing. And the one thing we know when interest rates are going up, when inflation is going up, you know, high multiple, unprofitable, you know, companies don't do well in that type of environment, which is what makes up our K. So we thought from a pure macro expre- you know, perspective, where the market is, we thought it made a lot of sense. The other reason is it's just a better hedge. So you've got inverse ETFs on the S&P. You've got them on the NASDAQ. And historically, we've used ETFs like that to hedge portfolios. But what are you doing when you're buying inverse SPY or inverse Qs? You're basically shorting FANG stocks. And I've never met anyone who got rich shorting bank stocks. So we've always been frustrated that it's just not a great hedge. And, you know, you look at, I mean, if this product had been around at the beginning of the year and you had used it to hedge a portfolio, I mean, it would be a home run. So it's something that to us is just a way more effective hedge than buying something like, you know, the SQs, you know, the 3X NASDAQ short, which I know a lot of people like to use. So those are really the two biggest reasons. No, and you know, know, Matt, in terms
2: of the rationale for launching this, I I agree. I think those are good reasons for this product coming to market. But if you don't mind, I I would like to have you directly address some of the criticism I've seen from actually some other people in the industry. I, I think some people felt like you were somehow doing something wrong by launching a product that bet against another ETF manager. Now, I'll tell you from my perspective, I didn't have any issue with this. I didn't see you taking personal shots at Kathy Wood and, and ARK. Uh, but do, do you mind just commenting on, on some of that criticism? I was a little surprised by it, to be honest.
4: Yeah, I mean, I wasn't. We kind of had a sense that there would be some love-hate out there. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a huge Kathy Wood and, and, and ARC fan. I mean, what they've done, you know, put, putting themselves out there, disclosing more than they're required to disclose, you know, educationally. And what they've done for active ETFs, I think, is huge. But, you know, when we were looking for the best way to kind of express this, I mean, they've got the product that's out there already. But, yeah, we did have a lot of people, like, in the industry saying, hey, there's something wrong with that. And, yeah, I mean, I get that from the standpoint of no one's ever done this before, you know, launch an ETF based on another ETF. Um, Certainly, they have a lot of rabid fans. So I've heard a lot of things on Twitter, most that I can't repeat. Uh, uh, but then, you know, also the the performance has been pretty good since this has come out. So I've also heard, you know, a lot on the other side. I mean, a lot of thank yous, a lot, you know, when, when Unprofitable Tech was just really getting crushed a couple of weeks ago. I mean, a lot of, you know, hey, Stark's the only thing in my portfolio that's saving my butt here. So well, yeah, it's been both
2: sides. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. The reason I didn't have a problem with this, uh, I mentioned obviously, it's not like you were out there taking personal shots at Kathy Wood and Ark. I think a lot of people know I'm a huge fan of, of what Kathy Wood and, and Ark have done. You can look at their performance track record. Uh, track record. I think particularly on the marketing side, it's phenomenal what the marketing engine they've built. I, I just I don't think anybody else is doing a better job. But what I think is interesting here with your product is that it really shows. the the flexibility and the innovation around the ETF wrapper. I I mean, you look at this, the ETF wrapper has made it possible to easily bet against other managers, right? Some people may not like that, but look, investing's a brutal sport. Everyone's looking for an edge and investors taking a short position against anything out there, those investors are taking a risk. And I'll also say that if there are people shorting ARKK because they personally don't like Kathy Wood or whatever, that doesn't sound like a good investment thesis to me, right? I'd be very careful with that one. You should have a much more robust investment thesis. And, you know, you're offering a vehicle through SARC to, uh, you know, to take advantage of that if you have what you believe is a solid investment thesis. So I'll I'll leave it at that. Um, Let's move on here. Explain for us how this ETF is getting its exposure. So this is one times daily inverse exposure to ARKK. How exactly are you doing it?
4: Yeah, so we have swap agreements that give us direct 1x inverse exposure on ARKK. So it's, yeah, for all intents and purposes, it looks like we're short ARKK, but we're doing it through swap agreements directly on the fund. And we just rebalance those on a daily basis to get back to our, you know, kind of one-for-one exposure. And so it in, really is as simple as that.
2: And in terms of the cost, so I know this ETF has a 75 basis point fee, but on that uh, swap exposure, I'm assuming you're paying something similar to what the normal borrow would be to short ARKK, correct?
4: Yeah. I mean, we, there, there's certain, we can't avoid the borrow, so there certainly are costs embedded in the swap that change, you know, on a constant basis based on the underlying borrow rate in, in in ARKK. So from a, you know, apples to apples standpoint, you know, depending on kind of what platform someone is, I can't really say, you know, hey, this is going to be a cheaper way to get exposure than, than going short directly, what I can say is, though, I mean, some types of accounts can't short, some investors, for whatever reason, can't short, and some people who can short aren't comfortable shorting. So we kind of just said, well, yeah, you know, we're going to put it in a, what we think is an easier to use package for you then.
2: Okay, so you were uh, alluding to this a bit earlier. Explain some of the ways you see this ETF being used fr- from an investment thesis standpoint.
4: Yeah. So there, I mean, there's a lot of things that we've thought of, and then a lot of things we're seeing and people are telling us. So, you know, I like it as, as a hedge, and it could be kind of a tactical short-term hedge, you know, look, Hey, these types of stocks are going down, or I've got some growthier stuff in my portfolio. I want to offset it, but it's a hedge that you could hold on to for a longer period of time been something, you know, inverse, the S&P or the NASDAQ. I've seen people saying, you know, hey, we've got a, a long position in the Qs and then we're buying Sark or a long position in like XLK and we're buying Sark. Um, so all sorts of, of different uses. And, and we are seeing people who are saying, you know, hey, this is going to be a somewhat permanent part of our portfolio and it's just going to be a, you know, constant hedge yeah you know, against these types of companies so we're we're just we're seeing people use it a lot, lot of different we're seeing people day trade it you know they'll buy it in the morning and sell it in the afternoon so you know we really do look at this as kind of like a Swiss army knife, depending on what type of portfolio you're running. There's a lot of different ways you could use it.
2: In, in terms of how closely this will mirror the, the inverse performance of ARKK, can you talk a little bit about that? We, we mentioned the cost. This is daily inverse exposure. What should investors know about the performance ride they're going to get from this?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's going to be on a daily basis. It's going to be real close. And, and we've seen that. We're pretty much right on. You know, there can be a little bit of slippage here and there, again, with the cost. And, you know, and with the daily rebalancing, but, you know, again, it's, it's going to be real, real, real close, you know, within a few basis points here and there.
2: I, I have to ask you, given the initial success of uh, SARC, again, this pretty quickly jumped over $100 million in assets. Um, I know you're not going to give us your entire playbook here, but is it possible we could see you roll out additional products that short ARC ETFs or even other ETF managers that are out there?
4: We're, we, we've got some things that we're real close to uh, to filing that are, are, are going to be somewhat uh, along similar lines. So, yes, we are doing some other stuff. We're a big believer in, you know, true active management and providing investors all sorts of different tools. So, you know, we're always looking, you know, what, what you know, either what, what, is there demand out there? I mean, I get a lot of people on Twitter saying, hey, create this, create this. And I tell them, you know, have you give me a good idea? And it's a doable idea. We'll, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll consider it. And so we do have four things kind of queued up that hopefully within the next couple of weeks we're going to file. And then we've got some ideas beyond that.
2: There are few better ETF idea incubators out there than Twitter. <laughs> I'm amazed at the uh, the strategies that I see uh, brought up there. If you're an ETF manager not on Twitter and following that, uh, you're missing out on some great ideas. What about uh, leverage exposure to, uh, e- you know, ARC products or inverse leverage exposure? I'm not sure. Did you see these uh, these products that launched over in Europe? I think they were from leverage shares. Three times leverage and inverse exposure to several ARC ETFs. Is something like that a possibility?
4: Something like that is also a possibility. Um, You know, 3x, my understanding is you can't really do that here anymore. But 2x might be a possibility. Yeah, I mean, those are things we're kicking around.
2: Well, we will certainly keep our eye on everything coming out of Tuttle Capital moving forward, Matt. uh, I I will say you're also definitely on the list of most interesting new ETFs in 2021 with, uh, with SARK. But best of luck to you. Appreciate the candor today. Thank you for joining me.
4: Hey, thank you for having me.
2: That was Matt Tuttle, CEO and CIO of Tuttle Capital Management. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through etfprime.com. Next week, to kick off the new year, I'll be joined by Meb Faber, co-founder and CIO of Cambria Investment Management. We're going to talk markets in 2022. And then Bloomberg's James Seifert will preview the year in ETFs. Until then, I want to thank everyone for listening in 2021, and I'll see you in the new year.
0: is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainably-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of the progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risk, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments LLC.